Chapter Eight of the Case of Jenny Brace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Case of Jenny Brace by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter Eight. That was Friday afternoon. All that evening and most of Saturday and Sunday, Mister Holcomb sat on the floor with his eyes to the reflecting mirror and his notebook beside him. I have it before me. On the first page is the dog meat two dollars entry. On the next, the description of what occurred on Sunday night, March 4th, and Monday morning, the 5th. Following that came a sketch, made with a carbon sheet, of the torn paper found behind the washstand. And then came the entries for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Friday evening, 6.30, eating hearty supper, 7 o'clock, lights cigarette and paces floor. Notice that when Mrs. P. knocks, he goes to desk and pretends to be writing. 8 o'clock, is examining book, looks like a railway guide. 8.30, it is a steamship guide. 8.45, Taylor's boy brings box. Gives boy fifty cents. Query. Where does he get money, now that J.B. is gone? Nine o'clock. Tries on new suit. Brown. Nine-thirty. Has been spending a quarter of an hour on his knees, looking behind furniture and examining baseboard. Ten o'clock. He has the key to the onyx clock. Has hidden it twice, once up the chimney flue, once behind baseboard. 10.15. He has just thrown key or similar small article outside window into yard. 11 o'clock. Has gone to bed. Light burning. Shall sleep here on floor. 11.30. He cannot sleep. Is up, walking the floor and smoking. 2 o'clock a.m. Saturday. Disturbance below. He had had nightmare and was calling Jenny. He got up, took a drink, and is now reading. 8 o'clock a.m. Must have slept. He is shaving. 12 o'clock a.m. Nothing this morning. He wrote for four hours, sometimes reading aloud what he had written. 2 o'clock p.m. He has a visitor. A man. Cannot hear all. Word now and then. Llewellyn is the very man. Devil of a risk. We'll see you through. Lost the slip. Didn't go to the hotel. She went to a private house. Eliza Schaefer. Who went to a private house? Jenny Bryce. 2.30. Cannot hear. Are whispering. The visitor has given Ladley roll of bills. Four o'clock. Followed the visitor. A tall man with a pointed beard. He went to the Liberty Theater. Found it was Bronson, business manager there. Who is Llewellyn? And who is Eliza Schaefer? 4.15. Had Mrs. P. bring telephone book. Six Llewellyns in the book. No Eliza Schaefer. Ladley appears more cheerful since Bronson's visit. 
He has bought all the evening papers and is searching for something. Has not found it. Seven o'clock. Eight well. Have asked Mrs. P. to take my place here while I interview the six Llewellyns. Eleven o'clock. Mrs. P. reports a quiet evening. He read and smoked. Has gone to bed. Light burning. Saw five Llewellyns. None of them knew Bronson or Ladley. Sixth, a lawyer, out at revival meeting. Went to the church and walked home with him. He knows something. Acknowledged he knew Bronson. Had met Ladley. Did not believe Mrs. Ladley dead. Regretted I had not been to the meeting. Good sermon. Asked me for a dollar for missions. Nine o'clock a.m., Sunday. Ladley in bad shape. Apparently been drinking all night. Cannot eat. Sent out early for papers, and has searched them all. Found entry on second page. Stared at it, then flung the paper away. Have sent out for same paper. Ten o'clock a.m. Paper says, Body of a woman washed ashore yesterday at Suwickley, much mutilated by flood debris. Gladly in bed, staring at ceiling. Wonder if he sees tube. He is ghastly. That is the last entry in the notebook for that day. Mr. Holcomb called me in great excitement shortly after ten and showed me the item. Neither of us doubted for a moment that it was Jenny Bryce who had been found. He started for Suigley that same afternoon, and he probably communicated with the police before he left. For once or twice I saw Mr. Graves, the detective, sauntering past the house. Mr. Ladley ate no dinner. He went out at four, and I had Mr. Reynolds follow him. But they were both back in a half hour. Mr. Reynolds reported that Mr. Ladley had bought some headache tablets and some bromide powders to make him sleep. Mr. Holcomb came back that evening. He thought the body was that of Jenny Bryce, but the head was gone. He was much depressed, and did not immediately go back to the periscope. I asked if the head had been cut off, or taken off by a steamer. He was afraid the latter, as the hand was gone too. It was about eleven o'clock that night that the doorbell rang. It was Mr. Graves with a small man behind him. I knew the man. He lived in a shanty boat not far from my house, a curious affair, with shelves full of dishes and tinware. In the spring he would be towed up the Monongahela a hundred miles or so and float down, tying up at different landings and selling his wares. Timothy Sanft was his name. We called him Tim. Mr. Graves motioned me to be quiet. Both of us knew that behind the parlor door, Ladley was probably listening. "'Sorry to get you up, Mrs. Pittman,' said Mr. Graves. "'But this man says he has bought beer here today. "'That won't do, Mrs. Pittman.' "'Beer? I haven't such a thing in the house. "'Come in and look,' I snapped, and the two of them went back to the kitchen. "'Now,' said Mr. Graves, when I had shut the door, "'where's the dog's meat man?' Upstairs. Bring him quietly. I called Mr. Holcomb, and he came eagerly, notebook and all. Ah, he said when he saw Tim. So you've turned up. Yes, sir. 
"'It seems, Mr. Dogs, Mr. Holcomb,' said Mr. Graves, "'that you are right. Partly, anyhow. Tim here did help a man with a boat that night.' "'Threw him a rope, sir,' Tim broke in. "'He'd got out in the current, and what with the ice, and his not knowing much about the boat, he'd have kept on to New Orleans if I hadn't caught him, or kingdom come.' "'Exactly. And what time did you say this was?' "'Between three and four last Sunday night, or Monday morning. "'He said he couldn't sleep and went out in a boat, "'meaning to keep him close to shore, "'but he got drawn out in the current. "'When did you see him first? "'By the Ninth Street Bridge. "'Did you hail him? "'He saw my light and hailed me. "'I was making fast to a coal barge "'after one of my ropes had busted. "'You threw the line to him there? "'No, sir. "'He tried to work into shore.' I ran along River Avenue to below the Sixth Street Bridge. He got pretty close in there, and I threw him a rope. He was about done up. Would you know him again? Yes, sir. He gave me five dollars and said to say nothing about it. He didn't want anybody to know he had been such a fool. They took him quietly upstairs then and let him look through the periscope. He identified Mr. Ladley absolutely. When Tim and Mr. Graves had gone, Mr. Holcomb and I were left alone in the kitchen. Mr. Holcomb leaned over and patted Peter as he lay in his basket. "'We've got him, old boy,' he said. "'The chain is just about complete. He'll never kick you again.' But Mr. Holcomb was wrong. Not about kicking Peter, although I don't believe Mr. Ladley ever did that again, but in thinking we had him. I washed that next morning, Monday, but all the time I was rubbing and starching and hanging out, my mind was with Jenny Bryce. The sight of Molly Maguire next door at the window, rubbing and brushing at the fur coat, only made things worse. At noon, when the Maguire youngsters came home from school, I bribed Tommy, the youngest, into the kitchen with the promise of a doughnut. "'I see your mother has a new fur coat,' I said, with the plate of doughnuts just beyond his reach." "'Yes'm. She didn't buy it?' "'She didn't buy it. Say, Mrs. Pittman, give me that doughnut.' "'Oh, so the coat washed in?' "'No'm. Pap found it, down by the point, on a cake of ice. He thought it was a dog and rode out for it.' "'Well, I hadn't wanted the coat, as far as that goes. I'd managed well enough without furs for twenty years or more. But it was a satisfaction to know that— it had not floated into Mrs. Maguire's kitchen, and spread itself at her feet, as one may say. However, that was not the question after all. The real issue was that if it was Jenny Bryce's coat, and was found across the river on a cake of ice, then one of two things was certain. Either Jenny Bryce's body, wrapped in the coat, had been thrown into the water, out in the current, or she herself, hoping to incriminate her husband, had flung her coat into the river. I told Mr. Holcomb, and he interviewed Joe McGuire that afternoon. The upshot of it was that Tommy had been correctly informed. Joe had witnesses who had lined up to see him rescue a dog, and had beheld his return in triumph with a wet and soggy fur coat. At three o'clock, Mrs. McGuire, instructed by Mr. Graves, brought the coat to me for identification turning it about for my inspection, but refusing to take her hands off it. 
If her husband says to me that he wants it back, well and good, she said, while I don't give it up to nobody but him. Some folks I know of would be glad enough to have it. I was certain it was Jenny Bryce's coat, but the maker's name had been ripped out. With Molly holding one arm and I the other, we took it to Mr. Ladley's door and knocked. He opened it, grumbling. "'I have asked you not to interrupt me,' he said, with his pen in his hand. His eyes fell on the coat. "'What's that?' he asked, changing color. "'I think it's Mrs. Ladley's fur coat,' I said. He stood there looking at it and thinking. Then, "'It can't be hers,' he said. "'She wore hers when she went away.' "'Perhaps she dropped it in the water.' He looked at me and smiled. "'And why would she do that?' he asked mockingly. Was it out of fashion? That's Mrs. Ladley's coat, I persisted, but Molly McGuire jerked it from me and started away. He stood there, looking at me and smiling in his nasty way. This excitement is telling on you, Mrs. Pittman, he said coolly. You're too emotional for detective work. Then he went in and shut the door. When I went downstairs, Molly McGuire was waiting in the kitchen, and had the audacity to ask me if I thought the coat needed a new lining. It was on Monday evening that the strangest event in years happened to me. I went to my sister's house, and the fact that I was admitted at the side entrance made it even stranger. It happened in this way. Supper was over, and I was cleaning up when an automobile came to the door. It was Alma's car. The chauffeur gave me a note. Dear Mrs. Pittman, I'm not at all well and very anxious. Will you come to see me at once? My mother is out to dinner, and I am alone. The car will bring you. Cordially, Lida Harvey. I put on my best dress at once and got into the limousine. Half the neighborhood was out watching. I leaned back in the upholstered seat, fairly quivering with excitement. This was Alma's car. That was Alma's card case. The little clock had her monogram on it. Even the flowers in the flower holder, yellow tulips, reminded me of Alma. A trifle showy, but good to look at. And I was going to her house. I was not taken to the main entrance, but to a side door. The queer dreamlike feeling was still there. In this back hall, relegated from the more conspicuous part of the house, there were even pieces of furniture from the old home, and my father's picture, in an oval gilt frame, hung over my head. I had not seen a picture of him for twenty years. I went over and touched it gently. Father! Father! I said. Under it was the tall hall chair that I had climbed over as a child, and had stood on many times to see myself in the mirror above. The chair was newly finished, and looked the better for its age. I glanced in the old glass. The chair had stood time better than I. I was a middle-aged woman, lined with poverty and care, shabby, prematurely gray, a little hard. I had thought my father an old man when that picture was taken and now I was even older. Father, I whispered again, and fell to crying in the dimly lighted hall. 
Lida sent for me at once. I had only time to dry my eyes and straighten my hat. Had I met Alma on the stairs, I would have passed her without a word. She would not have known me. But I saw no one. Lida was in bed. She was lying there with a rose-shaded lamp beside her, and a great bowl of spring flowers on a little stand at her elbow. She sat up when I went in, and had a maid place a chair for me beside the bed. She looked very childish, with her hair in a braid on the pillow, and her slim young arms and throat bare. "'I'm so glad you came,' she said, and would not be satisfied until the light was just right for my eyes, and my coat unfastened and thrown open. "'I'm not really ill,' she informed me. "'I'm—I'm I'm just tired and nervous and—and and unhappy, Mrs. Pittman.' "'I am sorry,' I said. I wanted to lean over and pat her hand, to draw the covers around her, and mother her a little. I'd had no one to mother for so long. But I could not. She would have thought it queer and presumptuous. Or, no, not that. She was too sweet to have thought that. Mrs. Pittman, she said suddenly, who was this Jenny Bryce? She was an actress. She and her husband lived at my house. Was she... was she beautiful? Well, I said slowly, I never thought of that. She was handsome in a large way. Was she young? Yes, twenty-eight or so. That isn't very young, she said, looking relieved. But I don't think men like very young women. Do you? I know one who does. I said, smiling, but she sat up in bed, suddenly, and looked at me with her clear, childish eyes. "'I don't want him to like me,' she flashed. "'I—I I want him to hate me.' "'Tut, tut, you want nothing of the sort.' "'Mrs. Pittman,' she said, "'I sent for you because I'm nearly crazy. Mr. Howell was a friend of that woman. He has acted like a maniac since she disappeared. He doesn't come to see me.' He has given up his work on the paper, and I saw him today on the street. He looks like a ghost. That put me to thinking. He might have been a friend, I admitted, although as far as I know, he was never at the house but once, and then he saw both of them. When was that? Sunday morning, the day before she disappeared. They were arguing about something. She was looking at me attentively. "'You know more than you are telling me, Mrs. Pittman,' she said. "'You—do you think Jenny Bryce is dead, and that Mr. Howell knows who did it?' "'I think she is dead, and I think possibly Mr. Howell suspects who did it. "'He does not know, or he would have told the police.' "'You do not think he was—was in love with Jenny Bryce, do you?' "'I'm certain of that,' I said. He is very much in love with a foolish girl who ought to have more faith in him than she has. She colored a little and smiled at that, but the next moment she was sitting forward, tense and questioning again. If that is true, Mrs. Pittman, she said, who was the veiled woman he met that Monday morning at daylight and took across the bridge to Pittsburgh? I believe it was Jenny Bryce. If it was not, who was it? I don't believe he took any woman across the bridge at that hour. 
Who says he did? Uncle Jim saw him. He had been playing cards all night at one of the clubs and was walking home. He says he met Mr. Howell face to face and spoke to him. The woman was tall and veiled. Uncle Jim sent for him a day or two later, and he refused to explain. Then they forbade him the house. Mama objected to him anyhow, and he only came on sufferance. He is a college man of good family, but without any money at all save what he earns. And now... I had had some young newspaper men with me, and I knew what they got. They were nice boys, but they made fifteen dollars a week. I'm afraid I smiled a little as I looked around the room, with its gray grass-cloth walls, its taller table spread with ivory and gold, and the maid in attendance in her black dress and white apron, collar and cuffs. Even the little nightgown Lydia was wearing would have taken a week's salary or more. She saw my smile. It was to be his chance, she said. If he made good, he was to have something better. My uncle Jim owns the paper, and he promised me to help him, but— So Jim was running a newspaper. That was a curious career for Jim to choose. Jim, who was twice expelled from school, and who could never write a letter without a dictionary beside him. I had a pang when I heard his name again, after all the years, for I had written to Jim from Oklahoma, after Mr. Pittman died, asking for money to bury him, and had never even had a reply. And you haven't seen him since? Once, I didn't hear from him, and I called him up. We, we met in the park. He said everything was all right, but he couldn't tell me just then. The next day, he resigned from the paper and went away. Mrs. Pittman, it's driving me crazy, for they've found the body, and they think it is hers. If it is, and he was with her— Don't be a foolish girl, I protested. If he was with Jenny Bryce, she is still living. And if he was not with Jenny Bryce— If it was not Jenny Bryce, then I have the right to know who it was, she declared. He was not like himself when I met him. He said such queer things. He talked about an onyx clock, and said he had been made a fool of, and that no matter what came out, I was always to remember that he had done what he did for the best, and that— that he cared for me more than for anything in this world or the next. That wasn't so foolish. I couldn't help it. I leaned over and drew her nightgown up over her bare right shoulder. You won't help anything or anybody by taking cold, my dear, I said. Call your maid and have her put a dressing gown around you. I left soon after. There was little I could do. But I comforted her as best I could and said good-night. My heart was heavy as I went down the stairs. For, twist things as I might, it was clear that in some way the Howell boy was mixed up in the Bryce case. Poor little troubled Lydda! Poor distracted boy! I had a curious experience downstairs. I had reached the foot of the staircase and was turning to go back, and along the hall to the side entrance, when I came face to face with Isaac the old colored man who had driven the family carriage when I was a child, and whom I had seen at intervals since I came back, pottering around Alma's house. The old man was bent and feeble. He came slowly down the hall with a bunch of keys in his hand. I had seen him do the same thing many times. 
He stopped when he saw me, and I shrank back from the light, but he had seen me. "'Miss Bess,' he said, "'for God's sake, Miss Bess!' "'You are making a mistake, my friend,' I said, quivering. "'I am not Miss Bess.' He came close to me and stared into my face, and from that he looked at my cloth gloves, at my coat, and shook his white head. "'I sure thought you was Miss Bess,' he said, and made no further effort to detain me. He led the way back to the door where the machine waited, his head shaking with the palsy of age, muttering as he went. He opened the door with his best manner and stood aside. "'Good night, ma'am,' he quavered. I had tears in my eyes. I tried to keep them back. "'Good night,' I said. "'Good night, Iggy.' It had slipped out. My baby name for old Isaac. "'Miss Bess!' he cried. "'Oh, praise God! It's Miss Bess again!' He caught my arm and pulled me back into the hall. And there he held me, crying over me, muttering praises for my return, begging me to come back, recalling little tender things out of the past that almost killed me to hear again. But I had made my bed and must lie in it. I forced him to swear silence about my visit. I made him promise not to reveal my identity to Lida, and I told him, heaven forgive me, that I was well and prosperous and happy. Dear old Isaac, I would not let him come to see me, but the next day there came a basket with six bottles of wine and an old daguerreotype of my mother that had been his treasure, nor was that basket the last. End of chapter 8